Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Prime Minister told us he had a giant suite of vaccinations. However, they're not going to arrive until after everyone else's. How is that helping? And why do we not produce our own anymore? Donald Trump has pardoned Michael Flynn. Who else will get the nod as the president leaves the White House when he does? And it's obvious we have not kept our eye on vaccinations. Are we keeping our eye on national security? A former member of CSIS joins us to explain. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott's son. One month from now is Christmas. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to depress you. But there is one positive. No more wet, sloppy kisses from relatives you don't remember. Oh, I'm happy about that. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. I think, uh... I think Kurt's editorializing there a bit. All right, vaccination, uh, vaccination delays. How long uh, could Canada produce its own? And if so, when? Uh, there is certainly uh, a chatter of the, the places under construction, the facilities under construction uh, in Montreal and such. But uh, again, uh, not much of a capacity there and, um, and, and certainly not going to help us through COVID-19. Let's bring in Eric Arts, Canada Research Chair, uh, Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry, Western University, and is with us now uh, from the Department of Micro biology and immunology uh eric thank you for the time i hope you're doing well oh yeah i'm doing fine i'm a little depressed like everyone is to hear that news the other day you know it was funny because i was watching this press conference because it was literally five or ten minutes before i went on the air so i'm sort of listening to it with half an ear and he said that no very matter-of-factly as if we already knew you know we're not going to get this ahead of everybody else or at the same time because we don't make it anymore Uh, and again he said it as if we already knew and yet everybody is just dumbfounded by all of this what are your thoughts well it's kind of well it's pathetically funny because I don't know if you remember, but I was on your show a couple of weeks ago, and right after the the Pfizer vaccine was announced, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned that you know I was really optimistic and that I was hopeful that uh, even Canada would get the vaccine and we might see the majority of the population vaccinated by the summer. Um, now I'm not so sure. I must admit. Um, because I really had a thought that there was more dealings in government and with the the various governments around the world about uh, distribution of the vaccine. And I'm a bit surprised. I, I, it could be that our own government was taken aback by the uh, opinions of the U.S. and the U.K. and Germany. Um, and, and it's a lot more than just those countries, too, Eric. I mean, there's a pile of countries here. It's just not the major. It's just not America being selfish or the U.K. looking after everybody else. I think it's more Canada with caught with its pants down, no? Um, yeah, it's, it, it is surprising. I mean, I would imagine, and I've gotten that impression, there's more negotiations taking place. But, um, you know, I, I think there is concern, and there has been concern about our lack of uh, vaccine production, uh, there was a nice article that um, 
the Toronto Star did back in May, um, basically highlighting these problems uh, that we were going to face. And uh, at the time, there was a number of us that were highly concerned. But once we heard about the procurement and the purchase of all of these vaccines, I think there was a natural assumption that um, we would just slot in with everyone else and they would be distributed based on, you know, who purchased what. So I think that's a little bit surprising for a lot of us today. We remember that many people were questioning these contracts way back when, and the government said, well, we can't expose Pfizer's secrets. And really, is this about hiding Pfizer's secrets or hiding political information about when this would actually be distributed? No, I I suspect, um, you know, there's a lot of secrecy, and uh, not secrecy, I should say, but there's, you can't um, provide information about phase three clinical trials until they they reach a certain point. I, I suspect uh, it's it, it was no more nefarious than that, and and that and that's necessary um, to protect the validity of the trial data. So um, I I'm I'm not as concerned with that. I, I I'm not certain that this is something that the government has known for a long time. I think. It, um, I think there are a lot of pressures that exist in all of these countries to fight for the vaccine. And, you know, as I've told other people, this epidemic is not going away until the world gets vaccinated. So, you know, we are no better than anyone else in the world, in my mind. And we have to see equitable solutions for vaccine distribution around the globe. So... Uh, I, I totally agree with, you know, we're not alone here and that it has to be equitable, equitable uh, distribution throughout the world. But really, this is nothing like that, because what does it say when Mexico can have uh, people lining up for shots before Canada uh, can? Again, this is not about equity in distribution of shots. This is somebody who, who somehow a, a T wasn't crossed or an I wasn't dotted. And we goofed here because clearly other, uh, you know, not only the big power Powerful countries like Germany, the UK, and and France and such are are in this situation. I mean, we're also looking at Brazil and Spain and and, and Mexico. So uh, you know, uh, I don't think this is about an equity in Canada standing there saying, "Please help us." Uh, again, we've been caught with our pants down. Yeah, there. I mean, I, I don't uh, disagree. There is some truth to that, and I mean, it. Um, it there is a lot of problems uh, related to past government decisions. Uh, you know, we have abandoned approaches for vaccine production facilities for, you know, almost two decades. Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation actually provided the Canadian government with sizable funding to build uh, close to a $60 million vaccine production facility in, in Canada. And um, you know, through a government report, it was deemed that this was unnecessary to do. So I think we've lost opportunities. There was a huge um, production facility that Merck Frost had in Montreal. And when Merck left Montreal, uh, that production facility could have been purchased and retooled for this type of purpose. I, I think there's unfortunately a number of situations, and I was in the U.S. at the time, that I could see happening uh, that weren't positive uh, situations in relation to some aspects of production in the biotech industry. Um, And we're paying the price for that, unfortunately. 
Now, you have to have complete clairvoyance to predict a, a pandemic of this scale, but there's been enough pandemics in, over the recent you know, two decades that uh, we should have been more prepared. Um, you know, and many are, are, especially as you start blaming, you know, political parties for this, you know, pointing back to Mulroney in, in, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, my goodness, there's been several governments since then. And, uh, again, my question is, why would these facilities be leaving Canada? Is it not conducive for these facilities to be operating? Uh, here in Canada. Again, we're dealing with the same sort of situation that every other country is, too. I mean, the United States is a free market system. So, uh, you know, I understand that, uh, you know, Mulroney let these uh, companies go up for sale, and then eventually they were purchased by outside uh, facilities, but or outside companies. But are we doing enough to keep these facilities here? Are we doing enough to keep this kind of business in Canada, because again, we didn't kick them out. We didn't, you know, not everybody finances this through government. These are private companies as well. So, are we doing enough to keep these companies doing research and development here in Canada and to stop them from leaving and going to other countries? Well, I, I mean, you know, we have to look at it in, in two respects. There's the research and development, and, and that's the drug discovery, vaccine discovery areas uh, for a lot of diseases and disorders. And we actually and apparently we're good at that. Apparently we're good at that. Apparently we're good at that, Eric. We're just not good at manufacturing these. Yeah. So, and there is where uh, the rub is in some ways, because what a lot of people may not realize is the vast majority of drugs, uh, generics, and brand names are not actually produced in Germany, France, uh, Switzerland, or the U.S. or the U.K. They're actually produced. Uh, by uh, contractors in India and China. And I've been to those plants. I mean, they're really remarkable, and they follow a recipe card provided by the big pharmaceutical companies. And um, pretty well, uh, it's only when you have new, highly advanced vaccines, like this RNA-based vaccine, where we are unprepared for production in those sites. But eventually, that production will probably be shifted uh, to Southeast Asia and China and India. So it's, we, like the rest of the world, have basically relied on those producers um, for our drugs and our vaccines. And so the, the manufacturing facilities that we would have had 20, 20 years ago, it, it's deemed no longer necessary here. So that, 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 is problematic when we have a situation like we do today. So why isn't places like Brazil or Mexico dealing with this same sort of problem? Well, they, they also have production facilities because the once the... But again, at the end of the day, they'll be in the arms of people in those countries before Canada. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's um, it, it could very well be that way. And we rely on our government to do the best they can in, in trying to negotiate for, um, you know, the, the distribution of these vaccines. I, again, I'm, I was surprised as everyone when we probably purchased five times more vaccine from these companies or will uh, than is necessary for Canadians. And I was highly impressed that uh, the excess vaccines would then be distributed globally to low-income countries as part of um, a global campaign to make sure the vaccines get to everyone. Um, 
but so let's talk about that eric i mean that is very noble of canada to do to buy way more vaccine than it needs and and i'm not convinced that wasn't to 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 simply outshine the fact that we won't get them until everyone else and it's very you know canada should be commended that it's going to buy all these vaccines and hand them to less fortunate countries but again this is after everyone else and you know it's like being on an airplane and the oxygen mask comes down you put one on yourself before you put one on your kid because you're going to pass out before you get theirs on so again at the end of the day uh we've got countries that are that are uh that are less developed than we are have the less industrial structure than we have and they're getting vaccinated ahead of what we are it just doesn't make sense well yeah i mean um it, it it is an interesting scenario i i can't really say if these countries will get the vaccine before us um i i think we already know that what's that i said i think we already have that information that they are already ahead of us and will start their rollouts in early december yeah and i and i'm wondering how much um is related to the burden of infections in various countries however i would say that in canada we are maybe two or three times better than what's facing the u.s right now but we're not much better than Europe and other countries are in managing this pandemic, unfortunately. Eric Arts has been with us, Canada Research Chair, uh, Department of uh, Microbiology and Immunology, Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry, Western uh, Western University. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and we're all looking for that jab in the arm soon. So <laughs> Exactly. Uh, thank you so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in John Barlow, Conservative Member of Parliament for Foothills. He is with us now. John, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thanks very much for the uh, invitation. I appreciate it. Uh, you, you know, I think we're all... Well, let's play this clip from the Prime Minister first, and, and then we'll get you take. This is about a minute long. Go ahead, play the clip. One of the things to remember is Canada no longer has any domestic production capacity for vaccines. Um, we... Uh, used to have it uh, decades ago, but um, we no longer have it. Uh, countries like the United States, Germany, and the UK uh, do have domestic pharmaceutical facilities, which is why um, they're obviously going to prioritize helping their citizens first. So Canada did two things uh, over the past months. Uh, first of all, we've begun to invest once again in ensuring that Canada will have domestic vaccine production capacity because uh, we never want to be uh, caught short again without the ability to support Canadians directly. And that will be in place uh, in the coming years. Uh, if ever there is another pandemic, we uh, will not be, uh, be caught on the wrong foot again. But secondly, that's why recognizing the challenges we had around getting vaccines from other countries to Canada the Canadian government signed a record number of agreements with vaccine producers, potential, va- potential vaccine producers around the world. We have uh, reached out uh, and have actually one of the very best vaccine portfolios of any country around the world with far more doses uh, for Canadians, potentially, than we actually have Canadian population. That's because we don't know which Uh, vaccines are going to be most effective, which ones are going to arrive early, but we have done everything we can to ensure that Canadians get these vaccines as quickly as possible and uh, as effectively as possible. 
All right, let's bring John Barlow back in. John, your thoughts. Did this, how big a bomb was this? Because this completely stunned me. I was talking to a a guest, uh, an epidemiologist earlier. He felt the same way. How big a bomb was this to drop? Well, it's it's a bomb because it's, but it it just shows um, what has been going on since this pandemic started with um, the Liberal government kind of flying by the seat of their pants, um, not being transparent with Canadians. Uh, We have seen, countries around the world more than 80 countries are using rapid testing technology and at-home testing um you know the united states has already has a two-star general and their operation warp speed that shows that they're going to have vaccines to their residents in january we have nothing uh we have no strategy no plan and then this announcement which ironically now experts are saying is complete bunk um canada does have the capacity to manufacture these vaccines but was the agreement that the Liberal government signed and the Prime Minister signed with these um, these companies that gave away our rights, let's say, to manufacture these vaccines here in Canada. And he won't be clear on exactly what in these agreements entail. And uh, did we give away um, our licensing opportunities to manufacture these vaccines right here at home? Why would we have done that? Because, again, the, the Prime Minister was quick to boast about the portfolio we have. We've got more than everybody needs. So we just don't know when it's going to get here. Well, is it, uh, is it you know, ineptitude? You know, did they sign agreements without, you know, looking at the fine print? Or did they just sign these agreements and give away that licensing rights because they wanted to get out and say, hey, we've, we've signed more agreements with these companies than anybody else in the world? That, that means nothing if you don't actually access the vaccine. And, you know, they gave, you know... Uh, tens of millions of dollars to to a Montreal company, University of Saskatchewan, as well as the National Research Council, to be able to manufacture vaccines here in Canada. So what happened to that money? What happened to um, to that manufacturing capacity? And again, experts have now um, called into question the Prime Minister's comments saying, that's just not true. We do have the capacity here in Canada. Why are we not utilizing it? And is it because of the agreements that uh, Justin Trudeau signed with these other companies? So uh, Liberals quick to come out today and say this is all the Conservatives' fault. This days, dates back to the days of Brian Mulroney when he let these places be sold off and, and taken out of the country. Sure, you know, that's uh, you know typical um, Prime Minister Trudeau is, is to put the, the fault at, at someone else's feet. You know, but the fact is he's been in government for six years. Um, we've been in this pandemic for eight months. Um, you know, even before this pandemic, he dismantled our global warning system on pandemics, which was the envy of the world. Um, so he has to take responsibility for what is happening today. You can't go back 20, 30 years and, and blame previous governments. Those were private companies who bought up smaller Canadian companies and made, you know, um, their decisions in, as they can. Um, but he has to start taking responsibility for the actions and inaction that they have taken. And again, you know, you look at the other countries around the world, the European Union, the United States, the United Kingdom, Brazil, India, who are all going to have vaccine procurement and vaccines to their residents before we will. Now, that's nothing to, to disparage those com- those countries. Good for them. Um, but we are a strong Western democracy with a strong intellectual uh, capacity and manufacturing capacity here in Canada. What's happened? And I think the biggest thing, Scott, is... Canadians are sick and tired of not having a clear strategy. The Liberals have not been open and transparent with the COVID um, pandemic. Um, we have, you know, on, on the vaccine, 
who's going to get it? When are we going to get it? How is it going to be distributed? Who's going to be distributing it? Who's going to get it first? How many, how many doses are we going to need? Who has the infrastructure to store and transport? None of those questions have been answered. Where in these other countries, all of those strategies are very clear and public. What, what is going on here? And it's, it is really quite incredible that uh, we have no, no clear pathway to uh, how this is going to work. We certainly have lots of drug companies uh, working here, working out of Canada, but I understand it's more research and development. We push the manufacturing off onto someone else. Is it not conducive for these businesses to stay in Canada? Well, I think the problem that you see, Scott, and and a a perfect example is a company in Alberta near my riding. It's called ClearMe. They have rapid testing technology that has been proven to be 98% accurate. They've been waiting on Health Canada approval since June. In the interim, they have had approval from the FDA in the United States and the European Union. Their technology is being used in other countries except right here in Canada. And that is not a one-off. The problem here is the red tape and the bureaucracy of Health Canada. It is very difficult to get through that regulatory regime. And we are a small country, a small sample size when you compare our population to the United Kingdom, United States, European Union. So we can't just expect these companies to come here and want to do business and want to do testing. We have to entice them here. We have to go out there and sell ourselves. It's very hard to sell ourselves when you have a government that has just continued to pile on the regulations and the red tape. When those companies don't see a clear pathway to approval for their products, like ClearMe in Alberta, which is at their wit's end, they're saying, you know what, we have a made-in-Canada solution for rapid testing, which will ensure that we can keep our businesses open, schools open, you know, get our, our travel corridors back up and running, our airline sector. But Health Canada continues to delay and delay and delay. And that is a big part of our problem. You know, we've certainly heard a lot about the Prime Minister's building back better, uh, the reset, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, we remember back to the uh, the throne speech. It was supposed to show us that new utopian Canada and such. Obviously, <laughs> when the second wave hit, that kind of got got sidetracked. But, you know, it just seems to me that we've gotten away from ba- and COVID-19 has proved this to us. Uh, it's made our life smaller. It's made us show uh, understand what's really important, what we need, the basics of life to get through. And yet it still seems that um, this government is selling something that that really is not of concern to the average Canadian right now, uh, which is like being able to to sustain ourselves and look after ourselves and and have the supplies that are needed to to perform as a country. I understand we're a small country and and economies of scale and such. It's it's not always profitable for us to do that sort of thing. But yet we've, you know, a perfect example is the vaccine. You know, we've got this complex portfolio of vaccines. We've got way more than we actually need so we can look good by giving it to other countries yet we we're, we're, we're not even looking after ourselves we're not even looking after our own borders here we're, we're not taking care of canadians so uh, do we need a shift here and is this a message to all political parties that we got to get back to basics here we've, we've got to get back to the things that are important to the average middle-class canadian i, I think you really nailed uh, a big part of this issue scott with uh, with covid19 I think this has uh, opened up a lot of Canadians' eyes to um, how we've kind of lost our way uh, over the last few years. Uh, we have a, a Liberal government right now that is their eyes are always somewhere else. They're always trying to appease their, their global elites rather than focusing on what, what's most important for Canadians. And you bring up exactly what uh, we're talking about here is, is Canada needs, we've learned some valuable lessons from this. 
And the number one thing is we need to be more self-sufficient than we've ever been. We've lost that. Uh, whether it's agriculture and more value added to those products, our energy, which certainly as an Alberta MP, we've talked about a lot, um, but also in manufacturing, vaccines, rapid testing, but you know any part of that sector. We cannot continue to rely on those global trading partners and certainly the bad actors out there like, like the Communist Party of China. We have the resources here. We have the technology. We have the skill set. We have the intelligence. Those things should be done here at home in Canada. We have to be much more self-reliant and much more focused on value added here in Canada and stop looking around for, you know, a pat on the back from the United Nations or, uh, you know, the Davos and the World Economic Forum and those types of things. We need to start focusing on what's best for Canadians. And that is what uh, this government right now just refuses to do. So where do you see this going, John? Um, you know, here we are at the end of November. Uh, those other countries are going to start injecting people in the next couple of weeks. Uh, can the government pull something out of their uh, out of the hat here and somehow uh, get, you know, even a substantial amount here or, uh, you, you know, by by January? I mean, we're even talking like Health Canada said six million doses uh, by March, and you know, you divide that by two for the two two shots everyone needs. That's only three more three million doses, three million people rather uh, by March. Do you think we, can something change here? You know, I would I would love to tell you if if we had a, a plan, but uh, like I said, we've we've heard nothing in terms of a concrete vision um, from Justin Trudeau and uh, the Liberal government in terms of what they are going to do. And every single day, the numbers change. We're going to have 200,000 doses. We're going to have 6 million doses. We're going to have 2 million doses. We have no idea. And I honestly don't think they have any clue either. And I think it really, the the devil is in the details. In those agreements that they signed with those uh, companies who are producing these vaccines, I think they either, through um, lack of due diligence, uh, ineptitude, gave away our licensing rights to produce those vaccines here in Canada and utilize the vaccine manufacturing capacity we have here. And as a result of that, those companies are going to take care of their own first, as, as they should. Um, but they have signed bad agreements. If they didn't, um, they would be open and transparent about it. But as you've seen, the Prime Minister over the last few days, he refuses to answer those questions, as does the Health Minister. This has been an epic failure of, you know, Titanic proportions for a government during one of the worst pandemic, you know, the worst pandemic we've had in our maybe since the Spanish flu that uh, they have, you know, failed to protect the health and safety of their their constituents. A few weeks ago, John, there was a lot of chatter about these contracts and people wanted to see what was going on and, and, and what the deal was. And the government positioned it. Oh, no, this is top secret stuff. We can't re- reveal Pfizer secrets or, or top secret, you know, the 11 herbs and spices. Um, but I don't think that's what anybody was asking for. Uh, was this what they were trying to keep hidden? Because at the end of the day, looking at those contracts, we would have found out this information. Yeah, I just think that's a lame excuse in all in all honesty, you know, to say we, we can't give away, you know, corporate secrets here if we, we show you the the um, the agreements that we've signed. Um, you know, that's what we've been trying to do at the health committee is we've been asking for those documents to under give us a better, clear idea of where we stand. And we've been we've been doing that for a month. So a month ago, we if we were able to get access to those documents, we may have had an answer to this and we before the very last minute, maybe we would have been able to, to pivot and, and find some other solutions. But right now, when you're into December, 
and other countries are going to be starting to get this vaccine in January. And it looks to us like we're not going to get them until the spring at the very earliest. And again, with no plan on, on how it's going to be distributed, who's going to get access to it, and like you said, how many doses are going to be available. You know, it's funny, Canadians have been kind of smug as they look south of the border and, and see what, uh, you know, the world of Donald Trump and what they've had to do and how, the, how those poor people down there are trying to cope. And we've sort of sat up here with a, a smug face going, look how great we are. I wonder how Canadians are going to feel as they sit back and watch Americans uh, in, in what will still be Donald Trump's America getting shots in the arm, even in Mexico and Canada is still waiting in line. I, I think that's, I, I don't think that's going to fly with Canadians. That's a, that's a great point. And I think you're right. Canadians have looked south of the border and they've said, you know, Oh my gosh, thank goodness we're not down there. But if you take a look at the difference and how they've handled, um, what, what we're going through now. Ontario has hired retired Canadian Armed Forces Chief of Staff General Rick Hillier to oversee their vaccination distribution strategy. The United States is a two-star general in charge of its logistics, and they've developed a plan with CDC and FEMA. Uh, you know, under Operation Warp Speed, they're going to have vaccines to their constituents in January. And in Canada, on the federal level, no strategy. Like, what is our operation? Operation Maple Syrup? Like, we have no idea. Um, I'm sure Canadians are now going to be looking at south of the United States and say, Wow, um, where have we failed? And uh, you know, yeah, this the, this falls right at the feet of the prime minister. Uh, this is certainly something that's going to be going on for the next several months. Uh, do you see any band aid solution here? Well, I think the, the band aid solution in the interim is you know we have to have a pathway to economic recovery, and the mental health of our of Canadians, I think, is at, at a critical stage. Um, the vaccines are a big part of that. But there, there is technology that exists today, as I said, with rapid testing and at-home testing that more than 80 countries around the world are using. They've proven that it's a safe, science-based alternative to quarantines. It allows them to keep businesses open, schools open, hospitals open. That technology is out there. So why do we not use, in the interim, before we know where we are with the vaccines, why do we not have massive access to rapid tests and home-based tests as you know, sort of that stopgap until we can get the vaccine. They still can't even achieve that when we have Canadian companies who have that technology and are manufacturing it and using it in other countries, not here in our own. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's failure after failure after failure. And I can tell you, Scott, we want to be Team Canada on this. We really do. We understand this shouldn't be a partisan issue. But sooner or later, you have to step up and say, you know, the, the guys in charge are, are failing. And our economy, our businesses, and the mental health of our of Canadians is at risk, and they need to step up. John Barlow has been with us, Conservative Member of Parliament for Foothills, Alberta. John, thanks for the time. Be well. You as well, Scott. Thank you very much for the uh, the opportunity. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just as we're watching the what was it, November third. Uh, U.S. election unfold, and here we are on the 26th, and uh, it's still unfolding, although there's not too many folds left. Uh, of course, uh, the Trump administration and uh, the people that do so have uh, began the transition from one president to the other, which is at least good news. But uh, Trump's still busy uh, and has pardoned Michael Flynn. Uh, as he is going out the door. Will there be any more? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He is with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you. And to you as well, Scott. So you saw the... 
you saw the transition go on this week. It was finally announced that we would uh, there would be information yeah. shared to go from one to the other. Your thoughts on where we are, and is it smooth sailing at this point? Well, it does look as if uh, the most important thing is happening is that there will be a transition that, even though it's been late, will in fact be taking place in time to do some good in terms of the public welfare, that is, the incoming administration is now free to actually not only talk at the highest levels about uh, key things, that is, on the COVID crisis. We should remember that everything we talk about is uh, the backdrop of that is, is all, you know, people are dying and perhaps needlessly uh, because of political decision-making regarding uh, the COVID crisis. So the COVID crisis is running rampant in America, and that is the backdrop, and it's good news that now the two teams will be able to talk together but also national security. Uh, the daily briefings were being withheld, and the fact that that's going on now, apparently, I'm not sure it's actually been, it's about to go on if it doesn't. So that part of the transition is good, but also uh, not noticed as much is that all across the American bureaucracy, the various departments of government, there now are these landing teams, there is now conversations going on. So the fact that there will be some continuity and some some smoothness to this transition is good news. So um, let's talk about the pardoning of uh, of Michael Flynn. It, it, when all this was going down, uh, Trump was tweeting he didn't have too many positive words to say about him and, and, and was firing him in such way back when. Now that has all changed. Um, is he deserving of a pardon? How did we get here? Uh, that is a long and twisted story. Uh, probably longer than any one newscast conversation can cover. But essentially, Michael Flynn, uh, general, respected, um, who got, unfortunately for him, fired by the previous administration for some incompetence in the position he had. But he became a strong Trump supporter. Uh, he spoke on the stages with Trump. He helped lead a locker-up chant at one point when Trump was campaigning. And then he was named uh, to the one of the most sensitive positions in the incoming administration and the intelligence and security apparatus. And then 12 days later or so, he was fired. And he was fired because it turns out that he had misled, uh, he had lied about his contacts with the Russians, and that he not only uh, was holding back information or misleading information, but he was also taking money for speaking fees going to Russia. So he was unceremoniously forced to be fired. And it came that uh, the particular trigger uh, that the Trump administration announced, as I recall, was that he had lied to Mike Pence, the vice president, about about the contacts that Flynn was having with the Russian ambassador, Kislyak. So after that, uh, he was indicted. There, was, there were numerous uh, lengthy twists and turns to this case, but ultimately uh, he was called before a court. The court... Uh, was facing uh, charges brought by the Department of Justice, which then withdrew them under Bill Barr. But by that point, the cases were in the court, and the judge involved said, I'm going to proceed anyway, and he convicted he convicted um, Flynn for lying twice under oath. He sent, uh, I think those were the actual charges. And now uh, and he's gone, he's gone to jail, and he's going to be pardoned. So that's a, the short form of this. There's a lot more twists and turns, though. So, uh, are you surprised at this? Is he no. deserving of this? No, the uh, that's two different questions. I'm not surprised at all. Uh, 
this was in the works for a long time. The um, the fact that now we have Jerry Nadler coming out, former head of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, saying, look, uh, Mike Flynn, uh, General Flynn, he lied about communicating with a foreign power. That's a crime. And then Donald Trump dangled a pardon in front of publicly saying, you know, essentially, if you don't talk, uh, General Flynn, yeah. I'm going to pardon you later. And that yeah. is an abuse of power. He's now been pardoned. So this is uh, not a surprise. One little um, additional quirk to this case that hasn't been emphasized sufficiently is that his lawyer, that is General Flynn's lawyer, was Sidney Powell. Sidney Powell represented mm-hmm. him. She lost the case. But she later, just in the interregnum that you've been talking about since the election, she's been one of those people uh, publicly defending uh, as a legal counsel to, uh, to Donald Trump the charges of malfeasance and, you know, the election was rigged and spreading conspiracy theories to the point where she was so extreme that even the Trump team disassociated herself from what was at one point General Flynn's lawyer. So uh, any more on the way between now and January? Yes, I think uh, there's going to be a lot more. Uh, I think they're going to fall under two categories. Uh, they, we're, we're finding that there's an ad hoc group in the in the White House under <laughs> the son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and the team are putting together lists of names that might be pardoned because there was a very successful, one of the few things that I think, and again, he doesn't get credit for this, I think, sufficiently. Donald Trump did pass a criminal justice reform bill, uh, but as with so much else in the Trump administration, he kind of stepped on that with some other activities he was doing at the time. But uh, there's going to be a lot of pardons that, in a sense, in a sense, could be viewed as, well, in keeping with criminal justice reform. So thing, people convicted of cocaine, uh, this is in the news, right. uh, got a life sentence for being convicted of cocaine possession. And so, so there, I think, suspect there's going to be a lot of those, but those may justifiably, or at least credibly, be viewed as cover for the other category a lot of key pardons of people who have been loyal to Donald Trump and who are, uh, for one reason or another, in jail or under indictment, he may well be uh, going ahead with a lot of campaign aides. Uh, we can, there's a couple, Rick Gates and, and uh, George Papadopoulos, some junior aides who have been caught up, and they stayed loyal. But a key one, there's two key names to keep an eye on. One that's not likely not likely to be pardoned is, is his former lawyer, lawyer Cohen, who, mm. uh, who said, look, this guy really betrayed me, and yeah. I'm now going to, you know, here's the truth, and he's put out a book, and he's, he's been uh, in the media. He's, he's in jail, or he's out on jail now uh, uh, at his home, as is the other one because of COVID. Uh, he's still technically under arrest. Paul Manafort is the key one to keep an eye on. Paul Manafort is yet another leader of the campaign, along with Bannon, who's also in trouble legally. Uh, Both of those two may well be given pardons, because Paul Manafort in particular, and Bannon as well, but Paul Manafort in particular uh, has been very, very silent on the things that he knows. And boy, does he know a lot about Ukraine and Russia and the Trump campaign. And these pardons are final. There is no recourse here. This is the true power that the the, uh, president has. But you know, something's come out, uh, Scott, that I, uh, the, there's a member of the House Judiciary and uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, uh, Senator Liu, who said, hey, look, if, these, if, if General Flynn is pardoned, he no longer, ha- not having 
the ability to incriminate himself through the Fifth Amendment, we, we're going to call him back and ask him more details about what mm. went on with the Russians, uh, because now that he's pardoned, he can't invoke the Fifth. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of ramifications of all this. All right, getting back to this transition, it seems that Rudy Giuliani is the only one that's standing beside Trump at this point and still fighting. Your thoughts on what happened in Pennsylvania? Initially, we had heard that that Giuliani was going to go there and Trump was going to go with him, but then changed in his mind and instead was was there on the phone. Is this a final Hail Mary pass? What's your thoughts on what happened in Pennsylvania? Let's let's link these stories a little bit. Uh, The Electoral College... Uh, December 8th, coming right up, all the states have to put in their final tallies. December 14th uh, is when the Electoral College meets and officially declares, you know, by 306 uh, votes, uh, well over the 270, that there will be a new president-elect. And it's thought that a lot more of these pardons may come flooding out after the Electoral College meets, because Mm. then, you know, it's definite and there's no way out. Yes, it does look as if all the various paths, and there were several paths uh, that Donald Trump hoped to use to still be claimed to be president, are being closed off one after the other. And uh, Giuliani, as you pointed out, is still working apparently in Pennsylvania, and Sidney Powell was supposed to be working with him, <laughs> Flynn's former lawyer, but uh, she's been separated from that. So they're still trying to do something that the state legislature, Republican-controlled legislature, has said in Pennsylvania, they won't do, which is appoint their own electors, nor will the uh, various representatives of the state who have the power to do so throw out a, a, a huge number of legal ballots, and a judge has now reinforced that. So it, it, there's increasingly um, fewer avenues for Donald Trump to say, I've won this election, and, and have a chance of having it stick. As you, know, as you know, we've talked about this, Scott. He wanted to get it into the Supreme Court. And closing out the avenue from Pennsylvania, the best avenue, to get it in the Supreme Court will be the final, the final closure of that particular option. And then, Scott, he's into, I actually won. Uh, he will put together a very um, tight case that he actually won the election and that it was fraudulently taken from him. And that <laughs> as, as Joe Biden takes office, there's going to be a, uh, an enduring capacity to say, I actually won this, and it was stolen from me. I was stabbed in the back, and a little dash of anti-Semitism tossed in with George Soros. So for people, he can hold his options open after he leaves office by having a a, um, good case in his mind that he can put out to his supporters that this was an illegal um, coup against him and that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. And whatever he then decides to do, he has the way to do it in his own mind and among his backers. What do you think his legacy will be? How do you think people will remember him? Because, again, if you look at the last couple of weeks, you know, I mean, here's a president who virtually every hour was badgering everybody. And then radio silence after the election. Haven't heard anything. He's like sulking in his room and now refuses to go. Um, What's the legacy going to be? How are people going to remember this guy? A a tiny link to this this story today is that uh, Bill Clinton stained his legacy by pardoning somebody on literally on his last day in office that uh, had some business ties in the past. And uh, by the way, uh, some of the people being pardoned are likely to be pardoned uh, now by Donald Trump may benefit him financially in the future. 
but that's a small matter compared to the bigger legacy. For 70 million plus, uh, 71 million or so Republicans who supported him, his legacy is going to be one of somebody who went there to fight for them, uh, for them, fight for their interest, and that he was illegitimately denied the presidency. We don't know how this is all going to wash out uh, in history. Uh, I suspect this extraordinary type of um, presidency that we've, you and I have been talking about since they came in, uh, it's going to go down as really an incredible moment in American history. But that's down the line. You know, history is written later. What we see in front of us is that this really isn't fully over at all as a phenomenon of American politics. The Trump era is not going to end on, on January 20th. Uh, there's going to be ongoing implications. One of the, to answer your question more directly, I think the transformation of the American judiciary under, under Trump is going to be one of the signature uh, long-term implications. Mm. And that's still going on. Apparently, Mitch McConnell is still trying to bang through even more of these young and very conservative justices, some of them listed overtly as by the by the bar association is not qualified. So the transformation of the American judiciary, up to and including the Supreme Court, is going to be an enduring legacy of the Trump era. Have the the Republicans been damaged by Trump? That remains to be seen. Uh, remember that you know he just got more votes than any other presidential uh, candidate for the Republicans in history. Mm -hmm. So uh, among Republican voters, will this, uh, will this ultimately cost them, or are they going to say, we'll stick by him and watch for the scramble? Remember now that you know, there's, there's an election coming in four more years. There's going to be a lot of contenders. Will those contenders fall out by saying, on the one hand, we are the most loyal supporters of Donald Trump, so put us in to continue Trump's legacy, or is it going to be those who are saying we have to save the soul of the Republican Party, put us in instead, and get rid of Trumpism? That's going to be the internal debate for Republicans. Is this it for Donald Trump's political career? Oh, you never know. Uh, <laughs> is he going to be thoughtful and considerate and tell the Republicans well in advance that he's not going to run for president in 2024? Will he keep everybody guessing, including the two of them? What would be your guess on that? Well, again, let's remember this all started as a publicity stunt, and look what ended up happening. I think he was serious about running. Uh, you do? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I had to reconsider my own thinking on this because I was relying on people who knew, knew him the best, since I didn't and none of the rest of us did either. But uh, I think he, he wanted to give – he was serious about wanting to make uh, his kind of change and, and also his kind of presidency which he did. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And, and thank you, uh, Scott, and be well yourself. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, the National Spy Watchdog is urging Justice Minister David Lamenti to close the gaps in the federal whistleblowing framework to protect Canada's deepest secrets and public servants who keep them. Uh, once again, talking about the security of uh, our country. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He is with us now. Phil, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Hope you are doing well during this pandemic. Yes, thank you. Uh, your thoughts, and I know this isn't your area of expertise, but is vaccinations uh, something like this? Would this be considered a security issue, a national security issue? 
I would think so. I would think that Canada as a nation has to have, you know, ready uh, when Canadians need it, the capacity and, as you mentioned, the licensing authorities to manufacture vaccines for something like COVID or other pandemics that are going to come, come down the road. The fact that we're not that we're outsourcing this or relying on second or third parties to do this does strike me as a national security issue because we've seen, Scott, over the past 11 months, what this pandemic has done to Canada. It has undermined so much of our lives right now. That I, that be, could be construed as a national security risk, not in the same way that terrorism or espionage is, but I would argue that for Canada to function as a, as a, as a state, for the economy to keep going, for people to be able to you know, make a living, this would, this would definitely cla- or be qualified as a national security issue. Yeah, absolutely. Again, don't want to get too political about this, but I've heard someone, uh, one of our other experts said, uh, it appears their eyes, meaning the eyes of the government, are somewhere else on more uh, fashionable issues, not necessarily keeping eyes on things like vaccination or even our security or our situation with China or PPE or whatever. Are our uh, eyes on other issues other than the basic needs of Canadians, which we need to be self-sufficient or at least reasonably so, and and protect ourselves? Scott, you're preaching to the choir. Uh, I spent 32 years in security intelligence, and I can tell you categorically that most governments, not just this one, do not pay a lot of attention to intelligence. They don't pay a lot of attention to what our security agencies are telling them in terms of threats and in terms of what to do about it. So I'm not surprised at all. And, you know, maybe it's the new shiny object that gets the attention, but these are issues that are brought up. And yes, there are, there are there is a role for intelligence to be played in pandemics in terms of where's the pandemic breaking out? Sometimes it's intelligence that tells you that, as well as open source information. So the fact that government isn't, isn't getting it comes as absolutely no surprise to me. And I, I'm saddened to have to say that. I would have thought that after years and years and years of trying to get the government to understand the role of intelligence and national security, they'd finally get it. I, I'm sorry to tell you, Scott, I don't get that impression whatsoever, especially with this government, the Trudeau government. We, you know, we, you and I have talked about China in the past. They've ignored. We've been telling you know, the government for, for, for decades about China's activities. In fact, China's not our friend. And yet we were just basically told to, to, you know, go away, leave us alone. And I think what was telling during this pandemic with the vaccination is is the, the prime minister was quick to tell how many we had bought, how many we had purchased, uh, the large portfolio, as he had said, and, and was eager to distribute these to other countries who were less fortunate. And that is incredibly noble. But again, seems so focused on that that they're not focused on the basic needs right here. And again, I don't mean to sound selfish, but is is this a will we see a priority shift here post COVID nineteen? Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But you know, you do raise a good point, and there's been a lot of talk in the media about the fact that we have to ensure that not just the rich countries of the world can afford to purchase the vaccine and inoculate their own citizens, whereas the third world is going to be left to their own devices. We know that the rates of infection. Are, are high all around the world, and there has to be a mechanism in place that there is the an equitable distribution of the vaccine. Having said that, there are bodies out there which I think are responsible for doing that. I'm not sure Canada has to be in the vanguard. You know, there's United Nations, there's the WHO, there's all kinds of organizations that do look to, you know, world health on that scale. And I do think the Canadian government uh, has to consider Canadians' interests first and foremost. And yes, we can be a good international player, as we normally are, but that's mean we have to sacrifice our interests for the interests of others. How big a misstep is this? Well, um, you know, if, if the vaccines are not available in time and Canadians see that, you know, other nations are doing better than we are in terms of infection rates and in terms of immunity rates, 
uh, I'd be a, a nervous Liberal Party going in the next election, whereby Canadians would say, look it, we, we, we elected you guys into office, we voted you in to represent our interests, to protect us, and here we find we're not doing as well as we could. Uh, there could be repercussions for Liberals at the polls. Who, you know, it is a minority government, right? And I don't know if the opposition is organized enough to bring the government down in a vote of non-confidence, but come time you go to the polls in a year's time or two years or three years, whatever it's going to be, I think Canadians will remember this as saying that this is a government that did not do what we expect governments to do on our behalf. All right, let's talk about this latest headline, and and maybe you can uh, pull it out of the weeds for us. A national spy watchdog urging the Justice Minister, David Lamenti to close the gaps in the federal whistleblowing framework to protect Canada's deepest secrets and public servants who keep them. Explain this. What does it mean to the average Canadian? Oh, God, I wish I could, Scott. I, I had a look at the news item, and I, I'm a little more confused. It's, it's highly ironic in a way that just the other day I put a podcast out about uh, Edward Snowden. Of course, everyone's you know favorite whistleblower. Some see him as a hero. Some see him as a traitor. Not surprisingly, I'm in the latter category, given I work for CSIS and CSE. The bottom line is that there just seems to be, according to the, the Justice Minister, there seems to be some kind of a... Uh, you know, a, a, a lack of protocol or a lack of consistency in terms of when this whistleblower protection should be in place. Bottom line for me, and look, I, t- I took a note way back in 1983 to protect the secrets to which I had access when I joined communication security establishment. It is incumbent on every Canadian who, who signs that oath, who speaks those words, to protect the very sensitive information that's gained through intelligence operations. And nor are we talking about sources and methods. So where it comes from and how you process it, that anyone should be considering allowing people who take this oath to um, not obey it, to ignore the oath and to, and to provide this type of sensitive information publicly. That's the wrong argument to make. Now, my understanding in this, in this article, Scott, is it has to do more with people who have complaints against their own organization for things like harassment or how they're treated. And there seems to be some inconsistency on whether those complaints can be handled internally or the person has to go public. That, to me, is a different issue. But when it comes to the actual secrets that Canadian agencies have, to me, there's no, there's no room for debate on that whatsoever. They have to remain secret. Why are we even going down this avenue? Because, we, because that's what we do as Canadians. Uh, I, I, you know, I hate to be dismissive here, but we seem to have more oversight bodies and more agencies that look at what we potentially are doing wrong than what we're potentially doing right. and I'm, Which is exactly how we got into the vaccination situation. I mean, <laughs> as I've said, eyes are somewhere else except where they're supposed to be. Well, and, and look, at, at the end of the day, I do recognize that organizations such as CSIS and CSE do have to have some kind of oversight body. They are very secretive organizations that have tremendous powers of, of collection and intelligence gathering. So it's good. It's good that two-thirds of the CSIS Act is devoted to oversight as opposed to what CSIS can do. It's more what it can't do. But it just seems to me that we're always focusing on the wrong, the, the wrong end of the spectrum. We're focusing on, you know, what if something potentially goes wrong, as opposed to congratulating and thanking those organizations for when they do things right. And as I said, you and I, Scott, have talked a lot about terrorism in the past. You know, we're only as good as our last failure in, in that world. If CSIS, the RCMP, or CSE messes up and something goes wrong, fingers are pointing in our direction. The minute we do something right, that we stop a, a, a terrorist attack through some kind of investigation, we're accused of being uh, overbearing. We're accused of, you know, using human sources to spy on people. We're, we're accused CSE of collecting information illegally. I mean, I, personally, and I don't want to carp for your listeners here, I'm getting tired of this, you know? And again, I'm biased. I worked there for 32 years. 
but it seems to me that we should have more of a conversation about what we're doing properly as opposed to what we're doing improperly. Have we become too politically correct, for lack of a better phrase? Oh, boy. How much time do we have? Uh, you are so right in that regard, Scott. And, and uh, I think a lot of Canadians, not just me, are getting a little bit tired of, of some of these arguments that are being made. The bottom line is that there are some serious issues that we face here as Canadians, and we need an adult dialogue to deal with those. But the language that's being used and the accusations that are being made are very general accusations that, to my mind, don't have a lot of basis in reality, and yet they're the ones that are winning the day right now. And people that I've spoken to are, are, are really getting a little bit you know, fed up with these broad allegations about impropriety, whether it's impropriety in the police forces or the security intelligence agencies. And there has to be a much more nuanced and I would say a, a fairer dialogue on what this, all this kind of stuff means. Call it political correctness, call it what you will. But I, I think that's exactly what's happening here in Canada. And, and the bottom you know, thing is, Scott, we're a very fortunate country here. We don't have the levels of violence that, say, Afghanistan or Somalia do. We don't have the attacks that are foiled on a weekly basis. It's very, very rare. In fact, I've just finishing a book now on the history of terrorism in Canada. We've had like 20 attacks in 150 years. That, that's pretty good. But, you know, let's recognize what these security services are doing for us, as well as law enforcement, thank them for the services, and deal with the inconsistencies and the problems at the same time. Uh, let's talk about the Huawei CFO and and obviously what that has meant as far as China-Canadian relations and, and, and how they've diminished as a result of this. Uh, last week, or maybe it was earlier in this week, no, last week I believe it was, there was a, a, a free Meng uh, uh, rally out, out, out in Vancouver. Um, uh, a, member, uh, a member of parliament from the NDP and the Green Party both there, and basically saying that we should be siding with China as opposed to the United States. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, that, that some are feeling that China is perhaps a better ally than the U.S. is? Do you remember the Cold War, Scott? Yeah. There used to be a phrase we used to use. We used to call people useful idiots. These yeah. are people that would be you know, fans of the Soviet Union or fans of Marxist-Leninism or fans of communism who all felt that was the best system to have and they would point to us as, you know, we should adopt more of what they're doing. Do what the Soviets are doing. Do what the Chinese are doing. Because, they, they, you know, they've gone beyond democracy. They've gone beyond capitalism. And they've discovered the nirvana of government systems. That, is, I don't know if it's an MP or an MPP, that person is the equivalent of a useful idiot in 2020. For anyone to stand up and say that we should take China's view on things as opposed to... Now, I can understand... You know, the U.S. view because of Donald Trump, a lot of people aren't expressing sure. a lot of faith now in our American allies. But for someone to say that China is the more believable partner than the United States, I mean, I, I don't know what parallel universe they're living in. And, 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 and you know, to say you know, release Hmong and all this kind of stuff, it's absolutely ludicrous, Scott. I, I hope this person is excoriated for what she said. I think it was a she. This kind of dialogue does not belong in 2020. China's not our friend. China has illegally uh, seized two Canadians whom they've held in isolation for what is almost two years now, I believe, all in response to a legal case here in Canada. That's not how civilized nations work. That's not how nations work in 2020. So for a, for a Canadian politician to say China's got it right is actually disgusting. And I'm ashamed to, to say that person uh, is an elected representative here in Canada.
it, it seems as if, um, um, especially with Donald Trump, it was less about China and more about just a mad on for the United States. That being said, now that Biden is about to be installed, how does that change the world order now? How does that, uh, how, how are our allies who were, who, uh, obviously Donald Trump was, was ticking off one by one. How does everybody feel about this next, uh, president and how will that change world order? From what I've read, Scott, there's a lot of optimism. There's a lot of, thank God, the last four years are drawing to a close. As you said, uh, President Trump did his utmost to piss off and undermine the alliances, whether it's NATO, whether it's Canada, whether it's NAFTA, whether it's, I mean, you name it. He basically tried to put the kibosh on any Western alliance since the Second World War. And a lot of world leaders and governments were very frustrated at that. I think that um, there remains to be seen, but I think that there's this sense now that, but for this way, Scott, Biden can't be as bad as Trump. But I yeah. do think, based on the statements that Mr. Biden has made so far, there is a cautious optimism that we may not get back to the status quo ante of, of 2016 under Obama, but we'll get to a much better place. The United States will be a much more reliable partner. President Biden will see these alliances for what they are. They're well-established alliances. They've been around for the better part of 75 years or longer and that this is the way to go forward. Instead of coddling up to dictators like Xi Jinping and Putin and President Erdogan and Turkey, et cetera, et cetera, that the new president will go back to the the the, the way things were done beforehand. So I, I think that people in security intelligence and law enforcement or government are all breathing a huge sigh of relief, and they're looking forward to getting back to a much more normal and much better way of, of conducting international relations. Uh, Canada has taken a bit uh, stronger stance against China in the last few weeks. We're seeing a little bit more uh, stronger language uh, in regard to relations with China, which we certainly haven't heard in the past, and you've expressed that. Uh, what about uh, uh, Chinese Canadians here on Canadian soil who are being intimidated by uh, members of the Chinese Communist Party who are coming here? in order to uh, to have influence and, and influence these immigrants that have come from China? Well, the government should call it out for what it is. It's foreign interference. And that's, that, that's out of the CSIS Act. That's Section 2B of the CSIS Act. They're, the CSIS is allowed to investigate threats to the security Canada that constitute foreign interference. We have to deny them visas if there are members of the Chinese embassy or consulates here in Canada who are engaged in those types of activities, harassing Canadian citizens or people, landed immigrants or permanent residents, whatever, people here studying, the government should say categorically, we're going to PNG you, declare your persona non grata, and we're going to kick your keister out of Canada. That is not consistent with recognized diplomatic protocols, and that's not what diplomats are supposed to do in a foreign country. Uh, so, yeah, maybe the government, the Trudeau government, has been a little more critical in recent weeks, as you, just, as you just stated, but it's got an awful long way to go. And I'd like to see these critical statements backed up with critical actions. Maybe we have to punt a few Chinese diplomats to get, for them to get the, the hit. Now, they're going to punt our diplomats from, from Beijing. It's going to be a tit for tat. We know that. But we've got to start sending the message that, you know, enough's enough. And, and just another side, side thing, Scott, you know, we at CSIS, we've been saying this for 25 years about Chinese interference in Canada. This, is, this, this didn't happen last night. It's been happening for a very long time. How do you keep racism out of this discussion? Because as soon as it's brought up, that's the first thing you hear. Uh, and, and I'm quick to, to say when we talk about this on the radio that it's it's not about uh, it's not about the citizenry. It's about the ideology. It's not about religion. It's not about race. It's about ideology. It's about communism versus democracy. How do you keep uh, this discussion from being pushed backwards? Uh, by, uh, under the veil of racism. You can't talk about that. 
Well, you can. I say you ignore it, because that's what China's doing, Scott. Whenever we raise this, they say, oh, look how you've treated your First Nations people. Look how you've treated yeah. you know, black Canadians. You just ignore them, because that's what they're going to do anyway. Who cares what China comes back with in terms of you know, pushing back against our policies? We're pointing out an inconsistent series of actions that the that Chinese diplomats and others are carrying on in our country. They are intimidating people here. That is illegal. It should not happen. And if China wants to make something up to try and push back against us, or to try to undermine our argument, you just say, la, 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 I can't hear you. Because we know it's wrong. We know we know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. And to give it any kind of credibility by saying, oh, you've got a point there, is completely irrelevant. Those issues do exist, and they have to be dealt with. As I've said earlier, this is a separate issue. They must remain separate. We have to speak with one voice and speak very strongly and categorically against this and not allow the Chinese to dictate the conversation. Phil Gursky with us, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Phil, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.